George Washington, the first uh, American president, said, few men have virtue enough to withstand the highest bidder. One philosopher put it this way, men are alike in their promises. It is only in their deeds that they differ. The difference in their deeds is simple. People of character do what is right regardless of the situation. I think what both of these statements are reminding us of, the reality that we all live in, uh, and that is simply that it's not easy. It is not easy to do the right thing when the wrong thing seems so expedient. It is not easy to do the right thing when the wrong thing seems so expedient. It's not easy to tell the truth when just fudging the truth a little bit seems to be so expedient. Ask Ohio State football coach Urban Meyer about that out of a recent press conference. It's not easy to be totally upfront and honest if twisting it could make you a little more money a little more quickly. It's not easy to stand with truth. Not easy to do the right thing if doing the wrong thing saves face. If doing the wrong thing gets you acceptance by what you perceive to be the right crowd. It's not easy to do the right thing when the wrong thing is so expedient. And that's a wrestling match, a tension that we live with, even to our day. And all of us experience it in different ways in different seasons of our life. And not only do we experience it now, but we know that uh, men and women who have been seeking to follow hard after God have been experiencing that uh, through the centuries. And as we dive back into the book of Esther, we find uh, uh, men and women who are struggling, struggling to do the right thing when the wrong thing can be so expedient. And we're going to focus on the interplay between two primary characters this morning as we make our way through this text. Uh, they are Mordecai and Haman. Mordecai and Haman, and they, they find, kind of become the antagonist in this struggle. And we find Mordecai standing up with conviction, even when not standing up would perhaps be the expedient thing. So I want to kind of just kind of redial us back into those characters a little bit. We'll begin to walk back through parts of the story, and then I want to see if there's some lessons that we might apply uh, to our lives uh, here in Fort Mill, South Carolina in 2018. So let's just remind ourselves of the central characters of this drama. The first is a guy by the name of Mordecai. Right? Mordecai was a Jew, we're told in chapter 2. He was uh, of the, the, the Jewish nation. He was part of that, that the generations that had been uh, deported. They had been exiled. And so now he's in, uh, not in Judah, not in Jerusalem. He's in Susa. He's in the middle of this Persian empire in this capital. He's, he's lived there as this exile, as, as the folks were, were, were taken away. He is not only uh, living as an exile and a Jew, uh, but he has been serving as a surrogate parent, if you will, uh, to his cousin Esther. 
Uh, Esther's parents both died. We're not told uh, how they died, just that they died. And so uh, Mordecai had stepped in, and Mordecai had been used by God to to shape her character, to guide her uh, with wisdom uh, along the way, to parent her in the absence of her parents. And there's one other thing that will be helpful for us to to take note of as we dive into the story, and that is that he appears to have had a position in the government. He has had a position in the government. So verse 19 in chapter 2 talks about Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Now, that's not like he just went there for coffee or something, right? Uh, But when when you're at the king's gate, it's usually because you have some official business. And so we have have Mordecai consistently at the king's gate. And he has some some position. We're not sure if he had that position before Esther became queen or uh, if he got that position or got another position after Esther became queen. But he has some position in the government. Now, we introduce the second character, kind of the the, uh, uh, enemy, if you will, and that is uh, Haman. And Haman, uh, very different background. And instead of being a Jew, he was an Amalekite. He was a descendant of Agag, who was the, their king during Saul's reign. And you can check out 1 Samuel 15 for a little more uh, background on that. And because he is this uh, Amalekite and from this, uh, this uh, lineage, he and his ancestors had this intense, intense hatred for the Jews. Uh, I mean, it goes back generations upon generations. There is this intense hatred. And he's, he's living in exile, too. His people were defeated, too. But he's, he's in the same situation in, in a sense of he's not living in his homeland, his ancestral land. Uh, but he still has this ancestral hatred uh, that he's carrying around uh, for the Jewish people. And, and what we find as chapter 3 opens is that uh, he gets promoted. Uh, to a position of the highest authority. Verse 1 of chapter 3 says, After these things, King Ashuerus promoted Haman the Agite, the, the son of Hamadath, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. Now, those are the characters. And as we begin to unfold the story, what I want you to look for is, is kind of this thing that I want to try to drive home, this truth, this calling, this challenge that Mordecai models for us. And that is simply this, that it is always, always the right time to do the right thing. Mordecai models for us that it is always the right time to do the right thing, even when the wrong thing seems to be the expedient thing. It is always the right time to do the right thing. But as we walk through that this morning, I, I want to I just challenge you to kind of be open to the Holy Spirit this morning. And as we walk through, just don't think about this as some ancient story. Don't just think about this as, as yeah, Mordecai did that way back when. But what about you and I in 2018? Is there some area in my life right here, right now, where God is going to push me, challenge me, stretch me through the Spirit to say now is the right time to do the right thing, even if the wrong thing seems to be more expedient. 
Let's jump into the story. As the story continues to unfold, we build on kind of uh, where we were last week. Uh, what, what we find is that, is that Mordecai uh, saves the king's life. So he steps in and does the, the right thing. And we're not going to read all of the, those verses there, but let, let's start with verse 21 here. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh. Now, let's pause for a moment. Don't, don't those guys sound like thugs, right? I mean, Bigthan and Teresh, right? I mean, this is like straight out of central casting or something, right? Bigthan and, and Teresh, the, right? These two thugs, right? Two of the king's uh, eunuchs. And, and as we, we discover, they, they, they have some issues. Who guarded the threshold, so they were in a pretty strategic place, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Asuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to the Queen Esther. And Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. And when the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows. And it was recorded in the book of Chronicles in the presence of the king. Now, what we find is Mordecai steps in. He steps in and he stands up and he does the right things. Now, I don't know. Maybe, maybe you don't really think about it. Not such a good deal to cross Bigfoot and Terrace. I don't know. Uh, but he steps in and he does the right thing and he intervenes. And that intervention ends up saving perhaps the king's life or at least an attempt on the king's life. But what we find as we look at the story is that there's a record of it. But there's no reward. I mean, he doesn't even get a Chick-fil-A gift certificate out of this thing, right? I mean, he, he kind of steps out and steps in, and somebody records it. But as far as we can tell from the Scripture, he doesn't even get a thank you. He doesn't get a reward. He doesn't get a promotion out of this at all. That's going to be significant a detail that we'll come back to in the next few weeks. There's a record. But there is no reward. In fact, is the exact opposite took place as we just, just saw. Not only does Mordecai not get a reward, but Haman gets promoted. Haman ascends to this position where he is above every other official, which leads us to the next point in the story. Haman has this position. But Mordecai defies an expectation that Haman and others would have. Let's keep reading verse 2 of chapter 3. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, he would not listen to them. And they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them he was a Jew. Now, we're not 100% sure from the text itself why he wouldn't bow down. Whether it had something to do with just the, the enmity between the two people, or whether as, as kind of part of this position and the requirement for Haman to, to bow down, it was kind of active, an act of worship, uh, similar to, uh, to what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego experienced when this image was set up and you were supposed to bow down to this image and they refused uh, to do so. But for whatever reason, Haman knew this was the wrong thing to do. And so he said, I am not going to do it. 
And because he didn't do it, eventually it was reported to Haman. And Haman, so angry that he begins to unleash kind of this, this evil plot, if you will, against uh, Mordecai. He, he's angry. So verse 6, uh, we'll start there. It says, but he disdained uh, to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Asherah. That, that because that he said, verse 5 said he was filled with fury. I don't know if you've ever had anybody filled with fury towards you, but, but Haman is, is so enraged, but his enraging is so intense. He says, it's not enough for me just to deal with Mordecai. My hatred is such, my, my fury is such that I am going to leverage this opportunity to not only deal with Mordecai, but to deal with this entire people. Folks tell us, the commentators tell us that when you start thinking about, uh, about wiping out this Jewish population, it, it could have been in the area of 15 million people across the Persian Empire. I mean, the Persian Empire is huge. It's huge geographically. And so he's not saying, you know, I'm just going to take care of this one bothersome person. I, not even just, I'm going to take care of this, everybody kind of, it's associated with him in this city. No, 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 I'm going to leverage this opportunity to unfurl this fury over the entire population. But in order to do that, he needs the approval of the king. And so he convinces the king to exterminate the Jews. And again, we won't take time to read every one of these verses, but, but I, I want you to see kind of the, the, the salesman he is, uh, he, really the manipulation uh, that's involved here. Verse 8, then Haman said to King Asuerus, there is a certain people scattered abroad. Now, Paul's right there, a certain people now listen, if you're gonna if you're gonna try to convince somebody to, to, to do this level of hurt and destruction, you want to make sure that that you don't personalize this at all, right? You don't want him identifying this with an actual person that he might know, that he might have sympathy with. So you put a label on them, a certain people. And we still do that in our culture today, right? We, we, we put names on people or groups or caricatures because it's a whole lot easier to attack a caricature. It's a whole lot easier to attack a certain people as opposed to a person that you really know and can identify with. And so he keeps it on that level at first. And he, he goes on to say, their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws, so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. And this, he knows how to package this, right? It's really not about me. I'm doing this for you. It is not for the king's profit for these people to be living. Now, obviously, they've been functioning in the kingdom all this time. Things have seemed to be going pretty well, but he has now convinced them it is not for your profit to keep tolerating them. Verse 9, if it pleases the king, because after all, the only thing I'm here to do is to please the king, right? Just a reminder, not everybody that says they're doing something for your profit to please you actually has your best interest in mind, right? If it pleases the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed. And I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, that they may put it into the king's treasury. 
So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadath, and he, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, the money is given to you. The people also do to do with them as it seems good to you. Wow. Nobody. Nobody ought to be entrusted with that much power unchecked and unaccountable. Nobody with that much evil in their heart should be entrusted with that much power. And what we've seen in the course of human history is that too often individuals with that much unchecked, unaccountable power can often do atrocious, hideous, unspeakable, evil things. And you see that unfolding in this text. Now, as we pause the story here, some of you may be saying, Jeff, I got to be honest with you, this doesn't encourage me. <laughs> this, this, I'm not sure this really encourages me at this point to do the right thing because it seems like everything is going wrong since Mordecai has done the right thing. And I want us to pause here because I think there's some powerful lessons for us to learn. And we're going to come back to some of these, some of these verses uh, just to understand. He cast the lots, and he, he cast the lots, and we'll look at the timing of that a little bit next week. And it, uh, it was a way of determining when this was going to happen. This decree goes out through the whole kingdom announcing that on this day, 11 months from now, this is going to happen. Just think about that for a moment. I mean, what is it like? to live knowing that 11 months, 10 months, 9 months, 6 months from now, the people you live near, the people you've done business with, the people that your kids have played with their kids, they're going to turn on you. They're going to rain down fury on you. They're going to steal. They're going to kill. They're going to destroy. They're going to plunder. Haman not only wanted them to be exterminated, but he wanted them to suffer. He wanted that just to be hanging over their head day after day after day for those next few months. And so that's the scene. And in the context of this story, I want to make sure we notice a few lessons. A few lessons to apply. The first one, it's this. Doing the right thing doesn't always result in an immediate reward. Doing the right thing does not always result in an immediate reward. In fact is, it may bring more trouble into our lives. And sometimes we, we, we get into the sense, well, I did the right thing and I didn't like get an immediate reward, so I'm not sure it's worth it anymore. You know, maybe we were training our kids, well, you, you, you do your chores, you do this, and you get this reward. And then as we begin to grow and mature, sometimes we encounter those situations where I do the right thing. Even when the wrong thing seemed to be the more expedient thing, I choose, chose to do the right thing, and instead of getting rewarded, it got worse. Sometimes that happens in a sin-scarred world. Doing the right thing doesn't mean that sometimes evil people won't seem to prosper. 
You do the right thing, no reward, and Haman, Haman gets the promotion. Gets given this power. If you go through Scripture, and you go through history, and maybe you go through chapters of your life and mine, and you find yourself wondering, God, why? Why? Tried to do the right thing. It feels like I not only didn't get rewarded, it got worse. Tried to live the right way, and it seems like this person who's lived every other way except that seems to be better off than I am. The reality is in a sin-scarred world, for a season, evil people may prosper. They may prosper even when you and I choose to do the right thing. Now, please don't hear me. Sometimes God in His grace and mercy rewards quickly and immediately. Many of us have been blessed. God has prospered us in a number of ways. But there are times when doing the right thing doesn't result in an immediate reward. The fact is, things get worse, and evil people sometimes seem to prosper. Thirdly, others will not always understand or encourage you to do the right thing. Others will not always understand or encourage you to do the right thing. We read through it, but let me take us back because I want to make sure you see that. When, when Mordecai takes this stand, when he stands upon his conviction here, the other king's servant said, why are you transgressing the king's command? Verse 4, and when they spoke to him day after day, and he would not listen to them. So it's not just, I made this decision and all these people said, you're so brave, way to go, Mordecai, we're with you, buddy. No, 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 no. They said, why are you doing this? It doesn't make sense. Can't you just go along to get along? Can't you just bow on the outside but not really bow on the inside? Can't you just play the game? Why are you doing this? Why are you being so black and white on this one, Mordecai? Please understand, not everybody will understand or encourage you to do the right thing, especially when the wrong thing seems to be so much more expedient. That's why it is so essential. That's why we talk to you about getting connected in community. Because all of us need, all of us need men and women around us who will, who will help to, to encourage us to do the right thing, who will understand the struggle that we go through, who will lovingly even hold us accountable when we need that along the way. Don't go that alone. God didn't design us to go it alone. We need to be connected to the right kind of community because all of us have enough other people around us. All of us live in a society that's not always going to understand or encourage us to do the right thing. And we need to find some of those folks, and we need to be some of those folks to other people who will encourage us to do the right thing. A fourth lesson is that we are to do the right thing, whether anyone notices or not, because God notices. 
You and I are to do the right thing, whether anybody else ever notices or not, whether anybody applauds, whether anybody celebrates, whether anybody says, add a boy, add a girl, or whether we get a reward or not, whether anybody notices, because we know, we know that God notices. Chronicles tells us, for the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless toward Him. That whether anybody else notices or not, the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth looking for those whose hearts are blameless or fully yielded to Him so that He might strongly support them. Whether anybody else ever notices or not, when I choose to do the right thing, when the wrong thing seems so expedient, God notices. God notices. Fifthly, doing the right thing shapes our character and aligns us with God's purposes. When I choose to do the right thing, it's not only about a moment and a circumstance, but it's about what it does. It shapes who I am as a person. It shapes my character. It aligns me with God's purposes. Many of us have found strength and encouragement in Romans chapter 8. And we know, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. And then he tells us what that good is. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that we might be the firstborn among many brothers. That God is at work in these circumstances. God is at work when I choose to do the right thing, when the wrong thing seems so expedient. And he shapes and he molds my character. And when I choose to do the right thing, I am stepping one step closer to perfect alignment with God's purpose, God's plan, God's will. And when I do the opposite, when I choose my way, when I choose the expedient thing, when it's the wrong thing, I am also shaping my character. I am distorting my character away from the image of God, away from the man or the woman he created me to be. I am misaligning myself. I am stepping one step further away from the purposes and the plans and the will of God in and through my life. And doing the right thing not only shapes my character, but it also has an impact on the people around me. It will also help shape the character of others. And so as we'll go through this story, we'll see not only does Mordecai stand with conviction, but there comes that point where Esther is going to do exactly uh, the, the, the same thing. And you think, where did she learn that? How did she able to do that? Well, I think at least part of the answer is who poured into her life? what she saw in Mordecai. And it encouraged her. And it even helped shape her character. Can I just meddle for a moment? If you're parenting, grandparenting, teaching, coaching, rubbing shoulders with other people, you're shaping not only your character, but your choices are shaping the character of people around you. Parents, you can lose all moral authority in the life of your child. 
by a character-shaping decision. See, when you fudge the truth just a little bit because it'll save you some money or help make you some more money, and there are little eyes and there are little ears that are just soaking every bit of that in, and you explain it away, oh, that's just business. That's just how things are done. There's going to come a time when that little one may take that same truth and twist it on you. And in that moment, you're going to want to call them on it. But you have lost moral authority. That's just business. It's just the way you do. See, my choices and your choices, they don't just affect my character, but they affect the character of others around you. God notices, and sometimes a whole lot more people than you think notice too. Which brings us to the closely related last lesson I want to draw out this morning. And that is doing the right thing is about becoming the right person and pleasing the right person. When we think about doing the right thing when the wrong thing is so expedient, I have to understand it is about who I am becoming. Who am I becoming as a person? And who am I seeking to please? So that when we come to the Scripture, we find that kind of reorientation about the choices in our life. Paul said to the Corinthians, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. When you begin to have that as your, your frame of reference, it changes the way you think about right or wrong. It changes the way that you think about some of the decisions of your life. And whether it's maybe something that's clearly said yes or no in Scripture, or whether it's how do I apply these scriptural principles to this situation, I begin to have kind of a different way of approaching that. When I come with the perspective of saying, God, in everything, in every choice, whatever I do, help me to do it for your glory. Later to that same group of believers in Corinth, Paul would talk about his own sense of mortality and didn't know whether he would be at home in the body or away. But he said, so whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. That I come in these moments and, and I realize that, that God notices and the choice that I'm making, it matters. It matters to God. It'll either bring Him honor and glory or it will dishonor His name. It'll either be pleasing in His sight or displeasing to Him. And I realize that, that regardless of how the world may or may not judge my decision, God will evaluate. God will hold me accountable for what I have done in the body, what I did in that choice. You see, when we come sometimes to decisions, we have a great capacity to isolate. Sometimes we say, well, well, well I know this is like maybe not the best choice, not quite right, but it's just one time. 
It's just this little box. It's not that big of a deal. But a choice in a moment is never just about the moment. But it's about whom I'm, who I am becoming and who I'm pleasing. It's about how it's shaping my character and the character of other people. And how it is bringing me one step closer or one step further away from alignment with the perfect will and way of God. And so I begin to understand that what I think is an isolated, not that big a deal moment is something that God's going to use. And standing by itself, it may not be that big a deal. But God's going to use it. And it's going to shape my character. And it's going to make it that much easier to keep walking in that same direction the next time and the next time and the next time. What Mordecai reminds us, what so many others in Scripture, what countless people through the centuries have reminded us is that it is always, always, always the right time to do the right thing, even when the wrong thing seems to be so much more expedient. I can remember as a child, we had moved from Philly to, to Virginia, and in moving to Virginia, we'd kind of moved back to an area where my dad grew up, and so we had some closer connection with some extended family. And I remember one evening, we had gone over to, to my relative's house, my uh, cousins, and my cousins were all a little bit older than I was, uh, but I liked going to their house because they had, they had a ping pong table in their basement, right? And so it's like, you know, hey, I get to play ping pong as this. Now, one of the things that was wrong is because everybody else was older than you, they they tried to like get you out of the ping pong table pretty quickly, right? And, and so sometimes you'd have to kind of uh, work your way in there. And there usually came at least some point in the evening where, okay, it's the adults. I mean, this is like serious ping pong time, so you go to another room, right? And I can remember kind of that was the moment I had managed to sneak in a little time at the ping pong uh, table, but was banished to the other room. And here in that room, my cousins, who were a little older, were real excited because they had been reading this book, To Kill a Mockingbird. And they were so excited because that evening, that evening, the movie was going to be on TV. It may have been the first time it was on TV. I don't know, but the, the Kill a Mockingbird was going to be on TV. Now, I was younger, and quite honestly, I didn't know anything about To Kill a Mockingbird, right? But I was kind of in this room. And they were excited about it, so I thought, well, maybe I'll watch it. And I started watching, and it was a pretty interesting tale. And at first, I kind of identified more with the kids, right? Scout and Jim go run over and knock on Boo Radley's house and run away, right? So, yeah, I've done stuff like that. But then my attention began to be drawn to their dad, to Atticus Finch, compellingly played by Gregory Peck, 
He ended up winning the Academy Award that year for that role. And even as my young mind, not fully understanding the story, I started to understand that something significant was happening there. That here was a man in the middle of the Depression, a lawyer doing a little better than most folks, raising a couple kids in a southern town, was highly, highly racial prejudiced, and he was thrust into a situation that he was called upon to defend in the terminology of that day, a black man who was accused of a crime against a white woman. And that was going to take place before a white judge and an all-white jury. And everybody knew what the outcome was going to be. And I watched compelled by this guy, which seemed to have a funny name to me, Atticus Finch, as he stood. And he stood. He stood upon the principle that all men were created equal. And he stood that this person deserved a good defense and a fair trial. And I watched as he stood there, sat in this chair right in front of the jail as this lynch mob showed up and they were going to take Tom Robinson out and they were going to kill him. And Atticus Finch put himself there on the line. And I watched that movie, and I've watched it since then, and I watched how his children were, were uh, ostracized and picked on and attacked because of his choices. And I watched somebody who decided to do the right thing even when the wrong thing would have been so, 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 so much more expedient. Just don't take the case. You can't win it anyway. Or if you're forced to take it, just do a token defense and get it over with. Don't infuriate these families. When the lynch mob shows up, you know he's going to be found guilty anyway. Just save yourself. Don't put your kids through that. Who knows if anybody will ever do business with you again from this point forward. The expedient thing is to turn your head. Get out of the way and not bother. But it's always, <laughs> it's always the right time to do the right thing. And whether it's Mordecai in a Persian capital city, whether it's Atticus Finch <laughs> before a 
racially charged jury, or whether it's you and I in Fort Mill, South Carolina, it's always the right time to do the right thing. And aren't you glad that Jesus Christ felt that way? Might have been a whole lot easier not to give up the glories of heaven and come to a sin-scarred world. It might have been a whole lot easier just to give them what they deserve. Might have been a whole lot more expedient just to listen to the whispers of the enemy and say, there's an easier way. You don't have to do it the hard way. You don't have to go to the cross. But it's always the right time to do the right thing. And because Jesus Christ gave up the glories of heaven, because Jesus Christ didn't take the easy way, because Jesus Christ went to the cross, at the end of that Friday, it looked like evil had won. It looked like that the enemy had the last word. That doing the right thing cost you everything. That is until the third day. And on the third day, there's a resurrection. Amen. On the third day, <laughs> the right thing is validated. On the third day, Sins are forgiven. New life is opened up. On the third day, God honors. God is glorified. God rewards the one who chose to do the right thing. It is always the right time to do the right thing. Would you bow your heads with me as we pray, please? Oh, Father, we thank you for these encouragement, examples, challenges from your word. And Lord, we just ask right now, Lord, don't let this just be a, a story of once upon a time. But Lord, let it be right here, right now. Uh, Lord, would you just graciously in these last few moments that we have together in this room, would you, with your spirit, would you just, would you just show us? Show us our heart. Show us our mind. Show us our life. Show us, Father, where, where we're struggling intensely to do the right thing because the wrong thing, the lesser thing, seems to be the expedient way. Father, would you... Just graciously remind us that what's at stake in that moment, that moment of choice and that moment of decision. Would you give us a glimpse of how it will not only impact our lives, but perhaps the lives of others around us? Lord, strengthen us through your grace. Guide us through your wisdom. Help us to do the right thing. Now I'm just going to ask you to take just another moment or two to sit before the Lord.